A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Yo. Technology. What is it all about? Welcome to another edition of Danny in the Valley. We have a special bi-coastal edition this week. My guest is Che Huang, who is the founder of Boxed.com, which is kind of like Costco, but for millennials. So they've created an app so that instead of spending your Sundays inside a giant warehouse tracking down those 240 packs of toilet paper, he'll send them to your house. The company has gone from $0 in revenue three and a half years ago to more than 100 million now. And Che was supposed to be in San Francisco this week. But due to a last minute change, he had to stay back in New York. So we're doing this with the magic of the interweb. So if this sounds a bit different than normal, that's why. Uh, Anyhow, it's a fun conversation. We even get into a little psychoanalysis into growing up as the child of immigrants and how that's shaped Che's approach to business. Um, Anyhow, I will let him explain. On to Che. I think it was the genesis of the business kind of tracks most successful businesses. And that was really just to uh, solve a problem that uh, I myself had uh, and frankly, all the co-founders had. And so we grew up in the burbs, um, moved into the city later on in life and and suddenly didn't have access to wholesale savings. And that was in the form of either going to BJ's, Sam's Club or Costco. And you were kind of held hostage by your local uh, CVS or Dwayne Reed or even your local kind of... uh, uh, urban grocery store, which was charging $6 or more for a box of Cheerios and thought, hey, you know, let's solve this problem for those who don't have the physical means to get to a warehouse club and let's see where it goes. Uh, Luckily, you know, that early kind of um, thesis was right. But uh, the real acceleration of growth came when it wasn't just the physical means problem we solved. Uh, It was actually solving the problem of time and patience Uh, and frankly, the shoppers lack of it these days. And so, now we say boxes for anyone that doesn't have the physical means, the time, or the patience to access a warehouse club. Did it literally start with expensive Cheerios? <laughs> I would say yes, a little bit of that, and also, and also, uh, very very unsexy uh, beginnings uh, in a two car garage in central New Jersey, and and I always love it when kind of friends and family are like, "Wow, it's so cool!" You know, like you start in your garage. Um, except uh, I don't think they realize like I was. Uh, 30-something when I started uh, in a garage. And when you tell most of your friends and family back then what you're doing, yeah, they're like, oh, he's unemployed. Um, and so <laughs> until you end up in that position, man, uh, you know, it certainly isn't sexy. Are you guys planning to come to Europe? If you look at the kind of 
wholesale model and folks that need wholesale goods, it really spans the entire world. And actually, if you look at a company like Costco, almost all of their growth uh, these days or meaningful growth is coming from their international locations. And so I, I read a stat somewhere that like out of the top five Costco locations on the entire in the entire world, uh, most are not in the continental USA anymore, and most are actually international. So, and that totally makes sense. You know, it's uh, the the model of saving money and stocking up. Uh, I think resonates uh, pretty well no matter where you are. Uh, so, definitely a possibility for us over the next twelve to twenty four months. Are you looking at the UK in particular? Uh, it's something that uh, we've definitely looked at uh, as well. You know, there are specific challenges with the market, um, but still looking and, and doing some more kind of uh, uh, research there. Uh, right now, I think we recognize that a lot of American retailers uh, kind of really fail going abroad because they feel like what's good here is is 100% translatable to what's good over there. But that's not necessarily the case and actually is rarely the case. So what are the uh, challenges particular to the UK? Um, you know, between kind of folks uh, uh, and uh, like house sizes are, are, are generally square footage wide, a little smaller than here in the, uh, in the US. You talk about even the challenges of actually finding fulfillment center space and, and being able to ship out of one and where that ends up. Uh, there's a host of things that, that we'd have to figure out before uh, we feel good about it. In other words, this is a small crowded island. Well, uh, it's a very nice island, um, but there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of great retailers there already. But still, uh, I, I think it could be in the cards. You know, like I said, I don't think there's a dominant wholesaler there, and probably a lot of uh, businesses and and families looking to stock up um, who might not have the, the the time or the physical means to to get to a warehouse club. So um, I certainly wouldn't write it off. Is Brexit an issue? Ooh, that's an interesting one. I. I don't think, like, I, I feel like it probably would have been a lot easier for us uh, if it had not occurred uh, solely because of some of the, you know, uniformity of, of laws and regulations, especially with regards to food, uh, obviously makes it a lot easier to expand. But I haven't done a, a ton of research or a ton of thinking uh, on that, but it certainly is a really good question and, and it puts a wrench into uh, any potential plans uh, without kind of researching it further. Did you grow up in New Jersey? I did. So I grew up uh, in Central Jersey. So my parents uh, immigrated to, uh, to, the, to the U.S. From, uh, from Taiwan. And when they first got here, we had bounced around between Ohio uh, and Baltimore. And those were tough times. Um, so language barrier with, um, with, with my parents. And basically for several years, uh, we made ends meet um, through only my mom's minimum wage salary as a fast food cashier. And so we were a family a of four. fast food cashier. Yeah, for a family of four, that's what she did to make ends meet. And and oftentimes, I you know we couldn't make ends meet. And I still remember those days. And so so yeah, I, I wish there were better times when I was younger. But I do think that understanding that that what that feels like um, kind of propels us today. But you were always had a roof over your head, at least. Uh, always a roof over our heads. Uh, maybe not our roof. Um, you know, whether it's friends or or, or family members. Uh, but definitely a roof over our heads. Oh, wow. So you you did have to bounce around a bit when things yeah. got tough. Yeah, quite a bit. What was your first business? Uh, first business was selling uh, Reese's Pieces cups and Warheads and, and all these and Sour Patch Kids to kids uh, at the basketball court. Warheads. What, yeah. what were Warheads? <laughs> warheads were these... Were those uh, like the really spicy candy? Yeah, that's right. And then you had like the, uh, uh, the Sour Patch Kids. 
and so I remember selling stuff like that up and down the street um, and, uh, and at the local basketball court, which was like two blocks from my house. But uh, our first real business was um, a mobile gaming studio uh, called Astro Ape. We started that under the premise that, hey, this iPhone 2G thing is going to be pretty big. And so let's make Farmville type games on this new platform called, uh, called the App Store. Uh, and so did that back in 2009 uh, and luckily rode the wave and, and, and Zynga acquired us in 2011. So you, how old are you when you start the video game company? So I graduated college in 03. Uh, this was kind of post dot-com bust, post 9-11. So there weren't a ton of jobs out there. And so I ended up going out to Japan to teach English uh, in the countryside and, and found that like, you know, you can kind of arbitrage the job by like teaching the kids how to play Duck, Duck, Goose. And then like, you don't have to do anything. <laughs> and you're just like, wow, you know, autopilot. And so, you know, maybe we invented autonomous teaching at that point. And so uh, that's basically <laughs> what I did. So came back though, it was the countryside. Friends were kind of going to med school, law school, business school. And I just felt, man, did I kind of waste my life in, in Japan for a few years. So came back, went to law school, and as luck would have it, found a great job in New York City, starting at a big law firm on September 15th, 2008, about eight hours after Lehman Brothers collapsed across the street from Lehman Brothers in Times Square, man. And so I, I had this like, you know, I had uh, uh, my new suit, I had my new briefcase, showed up to work when thousands of people were streaming out of the building across the street uh, with their bankers boxes. And so wow. um, I just felt like, man, life is not too easy for, for me. Um, why no. can't I catch a break? You were doing what corporate work at this big firm? Yeah. So a little bit of sports work, a little bit of uh, fund formation. Sure enough, during that time, it was kind of like the rise of Facebook when everyone really adopted the platform. And so a few high school folks that I knew reached out to me uh, after not talking to each other for, for many, many years and said, hey, you know, we're starting this company where we're going to make kind of these, um, these, uh, these Facebook games for the iPhone. Um, and I just thought, hey, maybe that works because I was one of the, I guess, one of the idiots that paid $900 for my iPhone, man, if you remember. Like, it was so crazy. You, didn't, you weren't waiting at the around, you know, outside at 6 a.m. <laughs> no, I didn't wait. But I, I did pay a ridiculous amount. I don't know if you remember, Dan, but remember, they actually rebated back to you some, some money because they felt bad. For, yes. you know? <laughs> so I was in that cohort. And, I don't uh, think they felt bad. No, <laughs> probably consumer backlash. But, uh, but we did that. Um, and then, well, first, no one played the first game we made. And luckily, iTunes... Uh, then featured our, that first game on the front page of iTunes across the globe. And pretty soon we had about 500,000 DAUs during the time of iPhone 2G, which was uh, quite a bit. 500,000 people using it every day. Yeah, which was, you know, pretty... Nowadays it's What like, was the you know, game? Uh, it was a, a game called Office Heroes. So you decorated your own office. And Are you serious? Yeah, so it's, that was the game. <laughs> yeah, man. office decoration <laughs> game. Yeah, so um, you know that's what's going to be written on my tombstone. Like you know, Elon Musk <laughs> sending people to Mars. Che Huang, office heroes, uh, and so I'll be. <laughs> <laughs> man, I'm in danger of that right now. I don't quite understand the game. Uh, so it's basically you know how you kind of build and decorate your farm for Farmville. You ended up yeah. building and decorating your own office. And kind of working up the corporate ladder as you as you kind of decorated your own office and got more money, um, and so you know how in Farmville, if you remember, like 
you clicked on like a, a, a like a, a patch of wheat and it'd say, oh, you know, uh, planting wheat. So in our game, you would click on a computer and, and it'd be like, oh, checking email for the next five hours. You'd come back, collect your coins, and then you can buy new chairs and stuff. Groundbreaking. <laughs> <laughs> now, now we sell and, toilet paper, Dan. So, you know, we're moving on up. <laughs> what did you do there? Um, so I you, would, you, you weren't necessarily a technical person, were you? No. So um, I, I feel like technical enough to know my way around. And to, and to these days, I, I, I say um, uh, pass the sniff test with engineers. Um, uh, but at that time, you know, I, I just led the company. I was the CEO, which is, comes to a really interesting point for the folks out there listening. It's like if you had a smaller company, you know, the CEO really doesn't do that much in the beginning if you're pre-product. Uh, but then afterwards, once you launch, um, especially in the game industry, as you kind of, as folks take a step back and if you're not producing new games, you're just upkeeping the current games, um, then actually you end up doing way more work than some of your co-founders. And so luckily, um, you know, we were, we knew each other for so long that it all worked out and, and the same co-founders here were the same co-founders of the last company. But initially you were just kind of sitting in the big chair waiting (laughs) for them to produce the game. Uh, sitting in the lawn chair, we were based out of our... My uh, one of our co-founders' mom's addicts, uh, and all I did every day was like, "Is it ready? Is it ready? Is it ready?" You know, <laughs> and then they got pretty annoyed go, with yeah. me. And so you had done law for how long? I done before law before you left to do that. I left as a third year uh, from the law firm, or just about my third year was uh, was beginning um, when I when I left, and and I remember, you know, at this time, if you rewound back back to 2009, 2010, you know, it was a basically the height of, that re- of the recession and folks were really holding on to their jobs by their fingertips. And I remember telling people around the firm that uh, oh, I was leaving and so they're like, oh, where are you going? Another firm, like in-house, you know, what right. are you doing? And I'm like, I'm, you know, making video games in my friend's mom's attic and they're like, this man got laid off. Like, there's no way he quit voluntarily. <laughs> um, but it was the truth that I, I, I quit. Um, and now I look back, I'm like, I don't know if I would advise that uh, to my to my kids if they were in that situation, so I kind of understand why my parents were so angry. Well, given given your background, that's quite a big step, isn't it? I mean, growing up, kind of bouncing around and struggling, and then you have this quote unquote good job. Yep, it, it was. And then you give it up in the middle of a recession. It so it was the reason why to this day, uh, my mom still says like, when are you going to get a real job? When are you going back to the firm? I'm like, what are you talking about, mom? Um, but you know, she just said like, people work their entire lives to find a steady job like that. Um, and so what are you thinking? And I don't know, I, I, at that time, I guess maybe it was a bit of just, um, I don't, I, actually looking back, I don't even know what it really was, but I just knew that I thought tech was going to have a resurgence. Um, I thought New York tech was kind of underrated. Um, and that, you know, I thought this iPhone thing could be big. Um, and so why not give it a shot? At that time I was, uh, single, no kids, um, and just had about a year's worth of personal runway in the bank and just said, Hey, let's give, let's give it 12 months. Let's, let's see what this is about. And so they build the game. What do you then do as a CEO? Because doesn't it basically just go on the app store and then kind of do what it's going to do? You're exactly right. Even after it launched, it's kind of like, okay, now what, you know? Uh, no one's playing the game. And so uh, luckily when Apple featured the game, then, you know, between kind of raising money, hiring, um, building out the office, uh, planning new games, 
then it got really, really uh, interesting and frankly, really busy. Um, but right. I'll, I'll tie it all together. Uh, you know, I mentioned kind of I went to countryside Japan to teach English. Um, uh, we could, even though the game was kind of on fire at the time, we couldn't raise money. We just didn't, you know, we had never done it. We didn't know anyone in the industry. And luckily got a call from a Japanese gaming company called DNA, D-E-N-A, and set up a meeting with their CEO. Uh, CEO found out uh, in that first meeting that I taught English where she grew up uh, in the countryside. Um, same area where, I, you know, I knew where she went to middle oh, school. Wow. Yeah. And less than two weeks later, they wired us about uh, a little under a million dollars to go and, and, uh, and build out the rest of our portfolio. So it's the reason why I feel like it's a ton of hard work, uh, at least in our case. It's a lot of luck as well. You, you build the game, it takes off. And then when does Zynga buy it? Uh, Zynga buys it uh, a little less than a year later, um, about six months before their IPO. Um, and so um, I remember getting a call. Uh, we were raising our Series A at the time. And this is when I know everyone's interconnected out on the West Coast. It's like, you know, get a yeah. call from their corp dev or email said, hey, I heard you're in town. I'm like, how did you know I was in town, you know? Um, why don't you guys stop by the office? And, and, uh, and we did. Uh, and I remember meeting the mobile team there, which was only, I believe like, there was only like, they just installed the leaders. And so it was like a team of like less than 10 people that was truly focused on mobile. Um, and they said, you know, we're thinking about this IPO thing um, and we could use some mobile help. Um, and, you know, being our first company, we thought um, it had legs. Um, and so we ended up doing it. So you sell it for how much? I think the final figure, it was kind of light to mid eight figures. So it definitely didn't clear the $100 million mark. Uh, luckily, you know, we, we took a good amount of cash uh, out of that acquisition as well. And luckily, well, well, I guess not too luckily, you know, we still had a considerable amount of stock. Saw the stock go from 10 at IPO to 16, to like about 1585 or something. And then all the way down to a dollar eighty-five or something intraday, and so this is Z- Zynga Zynga stock. Yeah, Zynga stock. Man, I, I don't have an MBA, but uh, but I do now. <laughs> I don't have a diploma to show for it. Um, but uh, you know, it, we learned so much in that run, man. You raise a million dollars, you create Office Hero, and then you sell it a year later for somewhere in the fifties to seventy million, something like that. Yeah, lower than that, but uh, but that's about right. Did you have enough cash as opposed to stock to walk away to or to feel like, wow, I've I've made it. Yeah, and not only that, but to really get the itch, you know, and, and one of the things I, I, I always say to kind of budding entrepreneurs is that I wish I had different news to report back, but um, you know, once you scratch the itch, it doesn't get better. It only gets worse. So whether it's successful or not, your first venture, it doesn't satiate that thirst for entrepreneurship. You know, so it's hard for me to say when folks are like, hey, I want to quit my job and, and give this entrepreneurship thing a try. I often tell them, man, like once you go deep into it, it's not like, hey, give it a try and then, oh, it didn't work out. Let me, let me, I feel good about it. You, you just think about it more and more. And so sure enough, that was the case for us. And we started uh, our second company together. And what was that? Uh, that was where we are uh, now at, uh, at Boxed. At Boxed. Yep. And so we saw mobile gaming really kind of wash away desktop gaming. And so we thought, man, the good thing about Zynga was the focus on data and the sophistication of kind of user acquisition and all this other stuff that they were doing. And we just thought, 
let's use that knowledge on the biggest prize we could find on mobile, and that was commerce. Let's go for it before right. other people pile in. Because you you stayed on at Zynga and kind of saw this wild ride on the stock market. Yeah, exactly. Up and down. And I remember when we joined, you know, you got to understand this was the height of Farmville, Farmville 2, Castleville. And so I remember yeah. like we were kind of like the, the Fox Mulder X-Files like uh, team in the basement. Like, you know, <laughs> like we believe like. And so they're like, yeah, mobile, it's cute, you know. But then around 20. 12, I believe, was the first time we saw mobile games make as much money, if not more, than desktop games. And so what were you, you guys were just trying to come up with other games? Yeah, exactly. So we ended up launching, I believe, two or three additional games during our time, during our almost two years at Zynga. Any of them as uh, popular as Office Hero? Actually, there was a game back in the day that was the first ever organically driven number one game at Zynga for mobile. And that was a game called What's the Phrase? And so it was kind of like your turn-based kind of words with friends game, except this was this had like a Wheel of Fortune type spin on it. It was interesting because um, for them at that time, it also showed that you could organically uh, get a game to number one. So um, so we did... When you uh, say organically, that just by pure word of mouth. Oh, yeah. Word of mouth and, and not, not pumping actual dollars into a user acquisition budget. In other words, marketing. Yeah, exactly. And so you leave... Why why boxed? We just thought there was a big opportunity, man. And so between our knowledge of mobile commerce and between kind of looking at a problem that we had ourselves and finally researching the industry and finding out that in the warehouse uh, club industry, you have three players, BJ's, Costco, and Sam's Club, generating $200 billion of top line a year with virtually 0% mobile sales. Um, we just felt like that was the biggest delta between mobile to offline that we can find in a consumer-facing industry. Um, so we said, hey, if we're going to do it, let's try to go big. And, 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 and we, we, we went headfirst uh, into this industry. But isn't, isn't part of the problem, I know from my parents' experience, my parents are older, obviously. <laughs> They're members, and when you go to Costco or, or Price Club, or whatever, it's mostly older folks. Absolutely, man. So I, I think it's a problem for the incumbents, uh, and actually a really big opportunity for us. So when you look at our audience right now, over seventy percent of our audience is, are, are between the ages of eighteen to forty-four. You look at the current demographics of the warehouse club industry; uh, you have over sixty percent boomers and senior citizens. And so when we look at credit card data, like there's virtually no overlap in the customer base. Costco has a huge business and they're perfectly happy. The members are like, yeah, I go into a Costco. But the younger generation is like, hey, you know, I love the savings, but I don't want to burn five hours like going there, shopping for two or three and then coming back. And so that's where we're seeing the real uptake. Yeah, because that's what was going to be my question, because I know that a lot of older people struggle with technology, you know, even sending an email or a text or whatever. So mm -hmm. buying a bunch of stuff on their mobile in bulk just seems yeah far-fetched man um a bridge too far yeah. yes you know what we try, the most interesting thing uh Dan, that we that we've been seeing is that so definitely there's like a, a dearth in demographics for uh the box shopper kind of probably in your mom's uh generation what we find though as folks get really advanced in age we suddenly see an uptick uh post 70 because then these are folks that oftentimes 
can't make it out of the house anymore, are in facilities, or uh, can make it out, but just aren't going to lug this stuff to the car. So we definitely see an uptake. Right. So it's kind of, there's that big piece of people in the middle yep. that are still kind of basically not engaging. Exactly. So when did you raise your first money for this? Uh, we raised it uh, late 2013. And we started off with, uh, I think, a $1.1 million raise for a seed round and moved into the garage and, and took it from there. Um, I think luckily... Was it, hard, was it hard to convince people that this is not a bad idea? Oh, dude, that, that would be an understatement. Um, because like, I remember going up and down Sand Hill Road and, and kind of even here in kind of Silicon Alley, folks would just say to me like, dude, like, oh my gosh, like 1999 called, they want their business model back. Hey, e-commerce is not a thing. You know, we invested in e-commerce back in like fund one or fund two and we're on fund nine now, you know? And so when you think about that, it actually produced the dearth of similar companies to us. So if you think about private companies, that sell Oreo cookies and Clorox wipes online and run their own fulfillment centers. We're an asset class one of one in the private market right now. And so it's not because we're geniuses. It's because there was that dearth of capital during that time. So uh, how long did it take you to actually get the first person over the line to get that, that million dollars? Uh, luckily, it got off to a quick start, but uh, through folks that were, were either interested in our Series A uh, last time, or that we're solely betting on the team. I, I don't want to name names. Uh, we actually had an early investor that passed on the seed round and then didn't come in until the A because they said, you know, this is like just about the, the stupidest thing I've ever heard. You know, <laughs> he's like, love it. Right. Like, if you didn't tell me you even knew what you were going to do, I would have written a blank check for you guys. But like, I don't, I don't like this. So it, it wasn't the easiest, even though we had a win under our belts last time. So you, you, Create an app, presumably, as step one. Isn't this a hugely intense, capital-intense business? You have oh, to buy a lot of stuff, right? A hundred percent. Luckily, even to this day, the inventory we carry is not as much as that you would imagine because, one, we just didn't have that much capital. So the rate at which we turn our inventory is actually really fast. And that's just part of our DNA from the early days. We didn't have the space or, the frankly, the money to carry such a long tail of inventory. And two, uh, we only carry the large format items. Like, so meaning that you can't buy uh, a single sleeve of Oreos from us. You have to buy like a 40-pack a from us. The good part is also that we're limited skew. So at any given time right now, we only have about 1,600 items. So it's it's easier on the working capital commitments than you than most folks would 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 think of right off the bat. What's your best selling item? Oh, it's definitely paper products. No secrets there. Like you know, between plates, cups, uh, toilet paper, paper towels. Uh, we also move a considerable amount of snacks as well of food. That's been a huge shift. Is that early on we vir- moved virtually no food. Now, like I would say, the majority of our business is food. And so when you talk about a 40-pack of Oreos, mm-hmm. that's 40 sl- like sleeves of Oreos? Yeah, that's 40 sleeves of, of Oreos. Or How many cookies is that? That's a lot of cookies, man. You know, you get, <laughs> it's either – so, it, you know, boxed isn't for everyone, and we're, and we're actually very open about that internally as well. You're, you're looking at like a large family or a B2B customer that's buying that. So that's uh, yeah, because uh, there aren't going to be that many families that <laughs> plow through five hundred Oreos. Oh man, <laughs> I wish there were more, but uh, but you're right. <laughs> <laughs> 
When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. And how does the um, logistics work? Because obviously this is big, bulky stuff by its very nature. Does not make this also... An- harder to pull off and make money yeah dude so um uh two things we had to figure out one is you know as we automated as now we've launched our our fully automated fulfillment center in one out of the four centers that we have we couldn't buy anything off the shelf like people would come in and pitch like the amazon solution the walmart solution it didn't work for us because one the items were too big for the bins and the totes and two our average customer is there to stock up so our average customer uh, not even B2B, but B2C customer is buying nine items on average per order. Um, and so Nine? Yeah, nine. So if you think about automation. That seems like not very much, but maybe it is. I don't uh, know. So definitely you know, for commerce and when it comes to what we sell, it's, it's, it's a lot. Um, so okay. uh, it's about a $100 basket where you know, a typical Amazon order is like about 1.1 items per, per order. Um, right. And so when you, when you get nine items, you know, even how the tote is making its, you know, like the bin, uh, how it's making its way across the fulfillment center and where it needs to divert, how does it amalgamate nine items um, before it gets packed was a pretty novel uh, project for us and the folks that had helped us do it. Um, secondly, what's good about nine items is that, yes, the boxes we ship are really big. Um, but at some point in time, you're paying more for the dimensional uh, weight of the box, how big the box is, rather than the Newtonian weight, uh, like how many pounds it is. And so you can basically split the price of shipping over nine items instead of you know, splitting the price of shipping over one to two items, which is what most other websites do. It makes sense because you have so much being ordered at one time. Exactly. So uh, let's take a really simple example. Like if we went and shipped like a Diet Coke at the UPS store, let's just say it's five bucks. If you ship two, it's not 10. If you ship 10, it's certainly not $50 to ship. And so it flatlines over time. And so you can actually, you're, you're way better off shipping a box with many items rather than a box with a single item. 
Are you making money? Are you profitable? Uh, so not profitable yet, um, but uh, but as the business matures, uh, we're starting to see that line of sight into profitability. Um, so that's the uh, that's because the was it was it a year ago? You guys raised a hundred million dollars. Yeah, so we raised almost a year and a half ago now, or more than a year and a half ago, we raised a hundred million. It's not a public valuation, but at a palatable valuation. So we never chased like that that paper kind of like badge of honor, and so. Um, the unicorn. Yeah, status. exactly. So we're not, we're we're under corn. What I don't even know what the term is for us. We're 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 a company. <laughs> um, so I don't know. Yeah. And how many people work uh, at the company now? Um, about full time uh, employees. You're looking at about a little under 250 or so. Every person, including kind of folks that pick, pack, and ship in the facilities, you're looking at about 600 across you know seven locations around across the U.S. So. Man, every time I walk into a facility of ours, I'm humbled by the fact that all of this was in my garage 40 months ago, and we hired so many smart people that helped us scale the company to where it is today. And you have a bit of a different approach to um, employee relations. Yeah. Uh, I read that you you actually have offered to pay for the college of your workers' children. Yeah. So we've got a few folks in college right now um, and a few more folks uh, in this coming semester it's tied primarily to kind of my stake in the business. So uh, if, the, if the company is successful, there's a lot of you know, tuition to go around. If the company is not successful, then there's way less tuition uh, to go around. But I would say that's predicated. In other words, you will pay for university with your stock. Yeah. I mean, there's short-term uh, commitments as well. Like there's folks that are just sending kids to school now. And so uh, that's just straight out of uh, cash. But outside of that, that's the kind of the, the bones of the, uh, the program. So right now, the company is paying for children's university, but the, fu- the future, as you grow, presumably enough thousands and thousands of employees, exactly. it, will be f- it will be a function of the value of your stake. Exactly. Between that and helping these folks power up more mobility in their, in their families, um, just like it was core to my family. Um, the only reason, frankly, that I'm here today is because of a good education. It's the type of company we want to run. So um, even having unlimited paternity and maternity leave, what you find unlimited. is- Yeah, unlimited. Um, but what you find- You know, it's interesting because mm-hmm. we had our first kid in the UK. Oh, congrats. You can get up, thank you. And you can get up to a year um, in many cases. And here it's, you know, six weeks and people are back at work. Yeah. Which, back at work. Which I just is, think it's criminal. I'm on the same page. I remember like even when we had our kids, like- there's no way my wife was ready to go back to work when it would have been mandated for her to go back. And so what we found was that best case scenario, she would go back and she her mind wouldn't be 100% focused on the job. Worst case, though, she actually would resent her job uh, as taking time away from our, our, our baby girl. What's interesting, though, is actually now that the program has been running for several years, the longest uh, a mother has ever taken from maternity leave was seven and a half months, full well knowing it's unlimited. And we didn't pressure her to come back. It was like, she was like, hit us up and just said, hey, ready to come back. I need to talk to adults. Right. The flip side though, <laughs> you know, we, and you know how it is, man, you have a kid. So, you know, sometimes yeah. you're just like, okay, I'm, <laughs> I'm speaking in baby tongues now, you know. But going forward though, the other side, we actually had folks come back in a month and just said, you know what, like I had my baby and like, it's, it's been great. Wow. And yeah, and so uh, paternity leave was the same way. Longest was five months, shortest was a few days. And so really like, it's interesting when you kind of offer everyone uh, treatment as an adult, it's just like, hey, you know, this is a life 
milestone for anyone. You should enjoy it. Come back when you think you're ready. Most folks actually come back when they're ready, which is sometimes not that long. How do you manage that, though, from a company perspective, especially if, you know, you have higher up, you know, kind of vital employees and say, I'm about to have a baby. I'll see you when I see you. Yeah. yeah. So no. Uh, nowadays, I would say we actually rolled out our first ever uh, employee handbook. Uh, and so I knew that was a moment when we got to a certain scale. And so the employee handbook, uh, um, uh, you know, just says you basically have to give some sort of expectation of, of when you might come back, even though we full well know that that's tunable. If you want to come back earlier or if you want to come back later, totally okay. But just so we can plan who's going to help cover uh, kind of your job function uh, while you're out, whether we can kind of make it work internally or we'll have to hire a temp or hire, hire someone else to, to kind of fill in while, while you're gone. That's quite a lot to take on for a startup or a company that is trying to make money and is still not making money. Yeah, I, I think it is. But at the what end was of the, the calculus, I would say one, it's just personal kind of experience of, of man, if you really want to retain people long term, and if you really want to have a culture where people show up not dreading to go to work, I think these are some of the things that, that we need to consider. But now after, when you look at kind of what we do, we don't really hire headhunters for our company and retention is, is, is really good. And so if you think about the lack of a need to go out and hire headhunters, which was about 30K for a mid-level hire, 100K at the minimum for a senior level hire, to retention where we've lost voluntarily less than 10 people uh, ever in the history of our company. If you do that math there, and you add in a little bit of kind of stuff you can't really add in on a spreadsheet, employee morale, it starts to really work out in our favor, especially considering there's studies out there that show by uh, someone quitting and you needing to retrain someone, you're basically wasting about 10 to 30% of that person's salary for the year before they're at optimal kind of performance. And so- um, Right, the cycling in and out and the training and the the money and and time required. Exactly, 100%. Do you think that this is applicable- Elsewhere, I mean, you guys obviously have a bit of a unique situation insofar as that you have, you know, you raised $100 million and the founders obviously have all done well in the previous company. Yeah, so this is where, hopefully for everyone listening as well, is where I get to show that we're not full of hubris and we're not on a soapbox saying this is what everyone should do. Um, I think luckily, you know, we instilled that type of culture and set that tone very early on. I'll say for certain, one, it's not for everyone. It just certain cultures are very different. Uh, and it's not to say they're bad, but every culture, you know, manages their folks uh, a, a different way. This is how we chose to treat our folks. And two, uh, a lot of times you could imagine if you're a company of, say, 10,000 people, this is not like scalable to, to like if you if you think hey, tomorrow at your all hands in front of 10,000 people, you, you kind of announce this without the skeleton of the culture being really good. Yeah, this will go off the rails really quickly. And lastly, I'll say also, I'm not here saying that this is going to scale into infinity, meaning that um, if, we, if we are a company of 50,000 people uh, over the next 25 years, can we continue this? I certainly would hope to continue it. Will there need to be changes and more guardrails? Of course, man. I, I feel like that's just the awful reality of, of having bigger and bigger companies. But as of right now, even at a few hundred people, it's been, uh, it's been working pretty well. 
So how many kids are actually uh, going to university right now on, on the kind of the company's dime? Yeah, so this semester, this trailing semester, three. Uh, next semester, I believe, five. Wow. You started with kind of paper products. Now you're doing snacks. Is, that, is it just more of the same? Yeah, I would say definitely now that we have the basics figured out in terms of fulfillment, you know, front end, servers, I think now is when we really earn our stripes as a technology company. So uh, we recently announced um, kind of uh, the initial beta test of our, our kind of our, our autonomous shopping concept. And you might think, okay, what the hell is autonomous shopping? Uh, what we found is that um, we have so much data on kind of our customers that, that after your basically your second order, uh, once we know your brand preferences, um, we can also start to guess uh, um, through direct data of how much you're buying and also through ambient data of how much other folks um, who are buying similar items to you uh, in a similar cadence, like when you're going to run out so that you actually don't even need to come back and interact with the app in order to get your next shipment. Um, so a lot of, or more and more of our B2B. What do you, wait, wait a minute, what do you mean? So more and more of our B2B customers uh, who opt into this program um, uh, it's instead of going in and saying, I want to subscribe and save to XYZ, uh, after their second order, we just start pushing boxes of what we think they're going to need uh, uh, in their next order. Um, and in it comes a note that says, hey, return one item, return the whole box on us. Uh, we're sorry if we got it wrong. And actually, to this day, we haven't gotten any returns. And so we haven't got a single return. We have, I mean, it's not the biggest program yet, but it's been working pretty well. I mean, we have four years and millions of customers. The data set is starting to look more and more accurate or more and more meaningful for predictive modeling. So you, you actually physically send these out and then just there's a note in there that says, if you didn't want this, just send it back. Yeah, 100%. Of course, it's an opt-in program because if you're just like, if you're just blasting packages out all over the country, <laughs> that might not end well, you know? And for now, it's B2B because you can imagine the elasticity of demand in a B2B customer is very different from a B2C customer. Like the minute that, you know, if we got something slightly wrong with a B2B customer, they're probably going to eat it or probably going to use it anyway. Um, unless we totally came off the rails. Um, but for B to C, like if, you know, if we shipped you like toilet paper when you didn't need it, you'd be like, what the hell is this, you know? And so we're still trying right. to get better on the B to C front. Okay, so this is mainly toward business customers. Yeah, so B to C, we have the same markers, but instead of sending it out, we actually uh, surface it to you on your next uh, order. So when you come back in, we say, hey, this is what we think you're going to buy. Uh, do you want to snooze it or do you want to cancel it? Um, and if you want to cancel it, it's because it's too soon or not the right price or not the right item. Are your parents proud of you now? Not so much on the professional front. Because like I said, you know, like, man, like my mom's kind of like a tiger mom. And so she's like, you know, when are you going to be a doctor? I'm like, mom, I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, a, I'm a grown man. I can't just switch to, you know, go to medical school now, you know. <laughs> um, but I think... I would think that they're most proud that instead of seeing like a real negative of the environment in which we grew up in, instead of seeing that as a negative or as an impairment, um, I've actually used that, that hunger and that work ethic uh, much to our success. And I think all that hard work, probably for my mom at least, uh, makes it feel worthwhile for her. So I hope, but, uh, but yeah. So I think they would be proud of me in that sense. that's it for another episode of Danny in the Valley. Thank you so much for listening. 
Uh, and thank you to Che for taking the time and for overcoming the technological hurdles to make it all happen. I think you'll agree it was well worth it. And just a heads up, next week we're just going to give you a little sneak peek of what we've got coming up. We've got some great shows we're putting together for you, some really big guests. I think you'll all uh, really dig it. It's uh, pretty exciting. And in the meantime, as ever, please do make a pit stop in Apple Podcasts and give a review. It's always a huge help. And of course, you can find me in the newspaper, the Sunday Times, online at thetimes.co.uk and on Twitter at Danny Fortson. Until next week, bye-bye. 